Welcome to Attached, a podcast about the loved ones you're attached to and the good, the bad, and the ugly advice about those relationships that maybe we shouldn't be so attached to. We here at Attached want to share ways to enhance your relationships and debunk all of that bad relationship advice using science. I'm Dr. Patricia Robertson out of the University of Tennessee and currently in a dungeon, apparently. Hmm. <laughs> I'm Dr. Sarah Woods at UT Southwestern Medical Center. And I'm Dr. Sessa Nagash from San Diego State University. Today, I will bring us some new science on family communication during COVID, led by Dr. Megan Reed at Emory University, published in SOSIS, a sociological research for a dynamic world. But before we get to it, if you have new research on relationships that you want us to talk about, send it to us. You can email us at attachedpodcast.gmail.com, tweet us, Facebook us, Instagram us, all at attachedpodcast, or go to attachedpodcast.com and send us a message. If you would like to support this little tiny podcast of ours and help get relationship science out into the world, please go to our Patreon page, patreon.com slash attached and donate. As always, wherever you listen to our podcast, YouTube, Spotify, Apple, there are so many, please consider to rate and review it. And as always, subscribe to it. All right, let's get into this episode. Sesson, will you intro it for us? Sure. Thank you. So over the past decades, most of the research on family communication has focused on marital relationships. The non-marital relationships tend to focus on, that are focused on, are usually in the vertical family tree, i.e. like parents or children, and less on horizontal, i.e. again, siblings, cousins, aunts, uncles, etc. So the exception in, the, in this research is racially and economically minoritized groups in Western culture. But we know that those extended kinship networks can live and can play an important supportive role in people's lives. Specifically, as the research state, little research to date has examined the communication pattern of extended kin or how extended kin may be activated in times of crisis. Dr. Megan and Reed at Emory University and her team recently published a new article titled Communication with Kin in the Wake of the COVID-19 Pandemic in the Journal of Socius, Sociological Research for a Dynamic World. And Patricia is going to walk us through it. Patricia? Fantastic. Thank you so much for that wonderful introduction. So as you said, family communication, especially recently, like in the research, tends to be examined within almost exclusively that nuclear family. Ultimately, these authors, Dr. Reed et al., really aim to fill that gap with new survey data on how communication with non-co-resident kin, so that's basically our family members who don't live with us, was activated or how we communicate with them during a crisis. I really thought it was fascinating how they specifically framed the COVID pandemic in this research, very clever way. They stated that the COVID pandemic provided a scenario to observe the type of family communication during a crisis. And they emphasize Dr. Jay Lebo's quote, and he is, uh, I believe, the editor currently of Family Process. In fact, they emphasize that Jay, Dr. Jay LeBeau, who is, I believe, the editor of Family Process, a, a journal, 
stated that COVID was that quote, a once in a lifetime international social experiment about family life, emphasizing how critical looking at family dynamics during COVID-19 was. However, most of the research during this pandemic period focuses on family members who live together, where these researchers looked at family members who do not live with you. In short, their aim specifically was to examine communication again between non-co-residential family members during COVID. Additionally, they wanted to tease apart the racial and economic class differences that impact or that are linked to family differences in family communication, as these two constructs currently in the literature are often conflated or, you know, used interchangeably. So specifically, the sample was 2,363 participants living in New York City were included, and they were surveyed in August uh, 2020, about five-ish months after the start of the pandemic. We need a re reminder that was March 2020. And if you remember way back then, New York City residents were particularly hit hard right at that March 2020 time period, very early in the pandemic. Unlike much of the country, like me here in Tennessee, we didn't really see the high numbers of COVID until much later on in the pandemic. So this study particularly is part of a much larger study called the Robin Hood Poverty Tracker. Interestingly, they used a random digit dialing to contact and recruit sample, which is something I haven't seen recently given cell phones with different area codes. Sometimes it's hard to do that, but I thought it was really cool to see that type of methodology in a more recent study. In terms of demographics, about half the sample were women. The sample was fairly distributed across age groups, 18 to, uh, to 65 plus. 33% identified as non-Hispanic white, 22% non-Hispanic Black, 15% Asian, 27% Hispanic. What they did also was they reported what the census track breakdown was. And all of these demographics really overlay almost perfectly to census track. So they did a great job sampling what the specific population was. 22% of the sample reported living below the poverty line, and that was a calculation, not necessarily the self-report directly of the participants. So how specifically did they look at communication and what did they look at? So they had a couple of primary outcomes. First variable was a dichotomous variable that respondents answered did you communicate with family several times a week since March 2020? Yes, no. The next variable was again a dichotomous variable asking the participants, did you increase in communication with family living outside of your home since the beginning of the pandemic? Yes or no. And variable three, if they said yes to increasing, then they asked them who? did you increase your communication with? And they kind of clustered those into upward lineal relationships. Any guess as to what those are? So that's up the family tree, your parents, your grandparents, parents, grandparents. and such. Downward lineal, which is down the line. So children or grandparents, siblings, and collateral, which includes all of those kind of horizontal other types of relationships, aunts, uncles, cousins, and, and the like. I love this 
graphic image, uh, graphic meaning literal as in X and Y axis, image of, of a family. They found some really interesting stuff. Just over half of the participants of the participants said they communicated with family non-residents in the first five-ish uh, months of the pandemic. So that was 56% said yes, they communicated with a family member that did not live with them. About a similar percentage, just under half, said that they increased communication with uh, these non-resident family members during this time. So as for people who increased communication with sibling relationships was the largest proportion of the type of relationship, followed by collateral kin. So that again is like aunts, uncles, cousins, upward lineal 22%, and then downward lineal uh, 16%. That 16% communication with children and grandchildren kind of surprised me, but then realizing the age distribution of the sample, 18 to 65, it, it kind of makes sense that a lot of them probably don't have children and grandchildren at the age of 18. Now, what about those social demographic factors teasing apart the economic and racial differences? And they looked at, at other interesting factors as well. So women compared to men were more likely to have communicated with a non-resident family member and that it, communication was an increase from pre-pandemic times. There is no observed differences in terms of age. So younger adults all the way to older adults were similarly likely to communicate with a non-family member and increase that communication. Foreign-born participants compared to non, I mean, to, compared to domestic-born participants were more likely to report an increase in communication, but there was no difference between these two groups in just like reporting, communicating generally. Respondents, this one was most interesting to me. Respondents living below the poverty line compared to those living above the poverty line were less likely to report communicating with non-residential kin but there is no difference in uh, between these two groups reporting an increase in communication. In terms of race and ethnicity, the breakdown, people who identified as non-Hispanic Black increased communication compared to non-Hispanic White individuals. There is no difference in just the presence of communication. People who identified as Asian reported had lower rates of communication, but there was no difference in increased of communication compared to non-Hispanic whites. Also, people who identified as Hispanic, there is no difference in communication, but they were more likely to increase communication during the crisis compared to non-Hispanic whites. Finally, it appears like though uh, who you live with actually matters to how who you communicate with outside the home. So people who live with spouses were less likely to increase communication with non-residential family members. And similarly for people living with a parent were less likely to increase communication. But like they said, they looked at, did you communicate? Was that communication increased? And if it was increased, who did you communicate with? That last piece is who did they increase communication with? So we know based on their findings that women were more likely to increase communication with that co-lateral kinship group 
and children and grandchildren and no other group compared to their men counterparts. In terms of age, all groups were uh, had an increased rate of communicating with parents, grandchildren, and children and grandchildren. But particularly for younger individuals, the 18 to 34 group and the 35 to 49 group, yes, they're younger. And I classify myself as being in the younger group, had huge, like gigantic odds ratios of facts for communicating increased communication with parents and grandparents compared to their oldest peers, which I thought was really, really interesting in this time of crisis. We're reaching out to our parents and grandparents, which was lovely. College educated, those who are college educated were more likely to communicate with siblings and collateral kin and their parents and grandparents, but not necessarily children. Um, and we don't know why that is. It might be that they have fewer children or their children are right there in their home with them. For people living below the poverty line, we see that that reduction in communication is mainly centered around collateral other kinship networks. So people who live below the poverty line were also far less likely to communicate specifically with that external, external family members. But we see no difference in communicating with parents, children, or siblings. Then if we look at race, ethnicity, people who identify as non-Hispanic Black were had an increased, uh, were, were, had, were more likely compared to their non-Hispanic white peers to communicate with siblings during this time period or increased communication with siblings, collateral kin, and also children and grandchildren, but there weren't any differences for parents and grandparents. And a similar pattern for people who identify as Hispanic. So this paper obviously is really fascinating, very, very dense in terms of looking at who and who they're communicating with and who's communicating and different ways of looking at it. But I'm curious from you guys' perspective, what did you take away from these numbers, numbers, and you know, I love numbers. So I just absorbed all of this, uh, with, with fervor. What did you guys think? Well, I think, I think I have had this sort of question about, and, and I'm not sure, like this paper is not necessarily able to tease this out. Um, but I'm curious sort of why, why they think, or why we think these changes happened during mm -hmm. this point of time, right? So I think based on what, what you're describing, Patricia, that the people who did this very cool research sort of talked about the the connection between how frequently we communicate with people that we care about and how that can, I think, maybe be tied to the closeness of those relationships and how potentially sort of the quality, like how connected we feel. But I think, I think that's not necessarily like a one-way relationship, right? So probably we communicate with the people we're closest to more, but then the people that we communicate with more, we probably feel closer to. And so I was, I'm sort of curious about, and, and again, we don't know from, from this research what the answer is, but were people in this study more likely to lean into these relationships because these are ones that they were maybe less connected to usually. So we could find that increase. They had maybe more time available to them. They had sort of the space uh, space to be able to do that and sort of expand those networks and who they leaned on a bit more than they might typically? Or were they people that were either sort of seeking more support or providing more support among people that 
really sort of do matter most to them at a time when everyone was especially worried. So mm -hmm. I, the reasoning yeah. is, I think, something I'm really curious about what the content of these conversations look mm -hmm. like. Why were people reaching out? How much of this fluctuated over time? Because these family members were also, I mean, as you talked about, Patricia, New York City had a really sort of unique impact of COVID that was especially horrific to I mean, be frank, right? And so how many of these family members were less available over time to people because of all of the loss that, yeah. that these people experienced due to COVID? And so I I was, I found myself immediately wanting more information, especially mm -hmm. as you talked about, what do these conversations include? Why were they reaching out? Because then I think it also is linked to what does this look like now? So for people who are listening to you describe this science about that, I think does a lovely, very cool job of pointing to, there's so many people in a lot of people's lives that we consider family, but that we don't talk about as often. Maybe we certainly don't research as much uh, aunts, uncles, siblings of adults. Like we don't, that's not a lot of science going on, but for people who are listening to you describe it and are thinking to themselves, oh yeah, I'm somebody who reached out a lot more often to family during COVID. I would also be curious what that looks like now. So is this a kind of contact that's remained persistently mm. high? I would imagine not, but um, did that translate to quality? Is that something that as you were reaching out more often, those people did become closer and more connected to you? And if that's true, but the contact yeah. has fallen off, is that something that could be helpful to sort of start a little bit more of? Uh, I think that's a really, really great, question i would speculate that the authors please call in if this is different or the same because they framed this really well in terms of what who do you reach out in a crisis to what does who what does that look like in a crisis that hopefully for most people the covid the crisis of covid has diminished that i would speculate they would speculate that the communication maybe has decreased sure yeah but you're right does that remaining boost in connection does that mean that the quality of that relationship has boosted a little bit more and your network has expanded maybe a little bit more could be a mm -hmm. silver lining coming out of the crisis of COVID mm -hmm. yeah well and and COVID is a was a global crisis Mm -hmm. uh, but a few years out from this, when these data were collected, these are still people who have personal crises all the time, right? And so right. these fluctuations in communication that you're talking about, is that sort of what always happens when mm -hmm. we're in a crisis? Like if I have a, a health diagnosis that's specific to me, that's not part of a global mm. pandemic, are these the same people I tap into? Um, and if they are, does it benefit me when I'm not in crisis to yeah. communicate more than I might be used to doing? which is not not an easy takeaway for, for people who no one has a lot of space and time, but that's what I was curious about. It's a really good question. And I would love to see what that research design, the design of that research study looks like <laughs> as well. I mean, this, this particular group that was, you know, surveyed, I think it's interesting because like you said in the beginning, PR, there is sort of New York City at that moment was sort of the epicenter, at least for the U.S. of what, and, and it was also new, right? There was so much ambiguity. 
And so there's something about everybody being in this state of confusion and chaos and really having no sense of what's happening. I think that perhaps changes maybe probably how we would have communicated at that point versus even mm -hmm. like six months later or right or a year later. So mm -hmm. I think there's something about this kind of moment when a crisis occurs and no one knows what's happening and mm -hmm. no one, you know, I think there is, it, it feels really, um, somewhat different than how the pandemic, right, in other moments in time we have looked in terms of people's communication. Yeah. I, at least that's what I'm 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 guessing. I have no mm -hmm. idea for sure, but it, it feels like that moment was so different than the moments that came after that in in the, in the pandemic in so many ways. So I have a I have similar to you Sarah, I had a lot of curiosity that stemmed from reading this like you questions. always know it's a paper that we're obsessed with when we recommend a hundred follow-on studies <laughs> yeah exactly this this definitely felt like the start of something as opposed to really providing a lot of answers to anything right which is okay I mean no 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 research study can capture it all but this one in particular felt like okay they were sort of scratching the surface here and there's lots of layers underneath that I'm really curious about um honestly the the things that really stood out to me were and, and I don't know that this article didn't necessarily uh, uh, leaned into this at all but that the fact that there were multiple like factors that we were dealing with in addition to COVID at that time right we weren't just in one pandemic in some ways. Like when you look at the social political landscape of that moment, mm -hmm. when you look at the social justice movement that was happening and that that sort of was erected around that May, June period, and then thinking about, you know, the the violence happening in the Asian American community, the fact that we were dealing with a very contentious political landscape with the 2020 election right around the corner. It's like there was a lot of reasons I think people needed each other. And in some ways, a lot of, of that also, I think, created tensions in relationships. So there's so many questions about like what the nature of these conversations were, if they were even conversations, right? Or they just angry that's text. A, yeah, <laughs> that's just, a really like, good point. They didn't specify whether it was a phone call, text, email, letter what whatever it was that's a really good point yeah yeah and in, and i'm thinking if you have elder or older adults that you're in connection with or in your family your communication may be are you alive are you okay that might right. be the yep. extent of it so there's a lot of questions i mean it can go from anywhere like how are you doing are you okay what do you need how are you doing mm -hmm. emotionally to just let me know you're okay right now like you're not out there somewhere so mm -hmm. i i think i have a lot of like okay communication here feels really broad um, in, in some ways, that's why I'm like, I would love to see what some of this looked like and the follow-up to this in, in some ways. And so when I also think about some of the community communities that were identified of ha having increased their communication, and I think about the Black community, I think about myself and the relationships I was in at that time and how I really leaned on, on my Black community and how that felt really important at the time where it felt like there was a lot of hostility between the Black community and the other communities out there. And so I don't, you know, I wish the, the article had sort of sp spoke to that because for a lot of us in the Black community, COVID and the, the social racial stuff that was happening was huge, 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 right? It wasn't like COVID and this little thing on the side. We were struggling emotionally, mentally with what was happening. 
in those other regards, which also doesn't surprise me that some of those like collateral kinship relationships were the ones we, we, we communicated mm -hmm. with the most because really people in the similar life stages, I think, were those we were probably reaching out to to make sense of what was happening more so than some in the in, in other generations. So that that stood out to me quite a bit, actually. I don't know if you all have anything to say about that piece. I think that's a really important piece that certainly the authors didn't take into account, especially because this was in August 2020. Mm -hmm. But I think it does further speak to who do we turn to, who do we communicate with, in a moment of crisis. And I'm so curious, one of my thoughts was, does this type of global pandemic, sociopolitical crisis that is beyond our, our control, I mean, most crises are beyond our control, but you know, even more so, it's so much bigger. Would it translate to a quote, everyday crisis or individual crisis of health? That's something that I kept on thinking of, would it be general, would these findings be generalizable? And I think it would be, but I'm curious what you guys think about that. Because in a way, the socio-political and the global pandemic crisis, everybody was experiencing it, right? You know, or everyone, at least in your community was experienced or had a, had a knowledge of it. But if it's, a health crisis to yourself, that's not necessarily something that you know everybody has heard of. I think I think that's part of why I'm reflecting on how these trends sort of either continue and or don't. And then when we have sort of subsequent personal crises, do we have access to who we tap into in the same way? Because the other thing that you're talking about is that if we are in community with these family members who are going through the same experience, then, or a similar experience, right? Then it's totally different for me to reach out and say, holy shit, this is hard. Mm -hmm. I need to lean on you for support, or rather I need to be open with you because I don't have to do any of that explaining maybe right. of what's going on for me, which I think maybe is some of what you're saying too, Seth, about the value of having other people that can just immediately identify with what you're experiencing. You're not having to explain yourself. I think that's different in a personal health crisis where if I haven't maintained an open line of communication with these family members, that's another like jump for somebody to make to say, this is what's going on for me personally that you can't possibly know about if you're not living this live time with me. I have to do a whole bunch of explaining to, to you to be able to seek support and or try to find out what's going on with you if I'm worried about you to be able to provide that support. And I think people do struggle with that leap yeah. of not well, having the shared experience mm -hmm, up front. Mm -hmm. Yes. And sometimes the first time explaining it to someone is like a relief, you know, but then every new person you are talking yes. to to seek out support, it becomes exhausting. Maybe, maybe not for everybody. Maybe that's a, a gross generalization, but it can be, I guess, uh, exhausting to do that over and over again, especially in mm -hmm. such a great detail. Yeah, I mean, that that strikes me too, that, you know, what you what you both are saying, like this lived experience that you share and how it opens you up differently to give and receive support, I, I think is really, it's an important consideration. I think like there's a, there's a lot of people who hold back, I think, leaning into relationships because mm -hmm. sometimes they don't want to do the emotional heavy lifting or feel like they're being on display or mm. have to like carry like 
someone else's emotions on top of their own. Like it's, there's, it's different than like, we both are struggling and there is like that shared experience can be validating, right? It can mm-hmm. be, yep. gives yep. you a sense of feeling really seen and valued in a way that maybe you don't feel like you you can find in, in other relationships where somebody's not going through that or, mm-hmm. you know, even remotely close to that. So I, I think there is a uniqueness about you know, the, the pandemic in that way, we were all in a pandemic, clearly experiencing it very differently in a lot of ways, but we could at least understand, generally speaking, like some of the struggles we were all sharing around yeah. being isolated right. or feeling like confined or just trying to manage everything on top of our health. Yeah. What else did this article mm-hmm. make you guys think about? Well, I noticed there was a really large, there was a significant pretty significant increase among foreign born respondents in terms of their communication. And again, I was left wondering about the the nature of sort of their past in terms of like whether or not they were immigrants, migrants, refugees, like some of those mm-hmm. communities where really important to lean um, into the community in times of crisis and thinking about some of those communities who also have a lot of historical trauma and how mm-hmm this was also a very traumatic experience mm-hmm. for people and how that may have triggered some people into states that required connection and reaching out. Um, so yeah, wondering more about that group as well, being yeah. also someone who's foreign born and just knowing that there were more risks to my community than others and mm-hmm. wanting to make sure that they were everybody was accounted for. Well, and depending sort of on the the residency status, I mean, I'm I'm sort of talking in particular to working in Texas, but the added layers of distress that patients that I was meeting with at that time to not being able to cross borders and not be able to get home to family or not be able to get them here, knowing that their resources, wherever their family were at, were maybe different and not as helpful or capable or sort of accessible rather. Um, that was a, it was a huge component of what I was aiming to try to support people around. And I mean, again, that's, that was wildly out of, out of anyone's control and was a huge layer of stress. So I also noticed that those individuals living below the poverty line were less likely to report communication at all with family outside their home. And it made me curious because we know working class people um, really were not able to experience lockdown at all, like income brackets were. So it made me curious if this uh, below the poverty line were not able to communicate with family because they were still working so much more Mm -hmm. than maybe the rest of us were. Uh, Likely really, really egregious hours as well. So they just didn't have the capacity or the time to be able to communicate. So that was one thing I was curious about too, was the quarantine status of a lot of these participants and how that might feed into the time available they had to talk more to family members that lived outside their home. Yeah, I it's part of why I was saying earlier, I'm curious about some of the reasoning about why these people were reaching out and sort of what created opportunities for that increased access is maybe mm-hmm. not the exact frame to use, but, but if that's occurring unevenly, I mean, some of what um, I think these authors talk about is sort of is family as a resource 
sort of uneven across populations. Mm -hmm. But I think what you're saying, Patricia, which I think is a very important question in the context of COVID is if opportunity through sort of having more time made it so that different groups of people could access family differently, then the resource is not necessarily driven by the family relationships, but more so by all the other contextual factors that get in the way of my being able to connect with the people I care most about. And that's where resources are uneven. And I think has the potential to exacerbate inequity when we know about the benefits that family relationships Mm -hmm. can provide. So just a few limitations. Of course, this was self-reported. I am curious if it's generalizable outside of New York City or outside of this particular era. Again, curious about quarantine status um, as as a limitation. But we do have some really amazing take-homes from this research. First of all, people in this sample, which potentially is generalizable, um, communicate with non-residential family multiple times a week, and many of them increase this communication during a crisis. So over half of people talking to those living outside the home, I think the authors were surprised by that that number was so high. So that's kind of really exciting, just the the frequency that people during this time were able to talk um, to people living outside the home. Another takeaway is that when we're under stress, individuals communicate with a wide variety of non-residential family members not just your siblings and not just your parents or grandparents. Therefore, researchers and therapists, uh, we should really be intentional on incorporating non-residential family members and other family members outside of the nuclear family specifically, um, which is a really common focus of most research and therapy. We really should be intentional in incorporating those non-residential and non-nuclear family members into our research and um, therapeutic practice, or at least acknowledge the importance of them. Also, and we only really touched about this, but I think it's also important to recognize the gender nature of the communication with uh, women continue to serve as the connecting force in in families, having a much more likely, uh, uh, we're much more likely to be communicating with these extra uh, outside of residential family members compared to men. And the final takeaway is that economic and racial and ethnic factors have, in this study at least, have different effects on family communication during a crisis like the COVID pandemic. So we should make an effort to not lump those two things together. Yeah. As always, thank you for listening to Attached. If you are interested, a link to the study is in the show notes. As always, your reviews and ratings help more people find us. So please consider to rate and review Attached on your very favorite app. Finally, if you have any relationship questions you want us to talk about, email us at attachedpodcast at gmail.com or get at us on all the social medias at Attached Podcast. We cannot wait to talk about it.